Welcome to Biteside. I thought I'd do it a bit differently because it's a new decade, Nick. And so I thought instead of just the wildly up-tempo vibe that I've thrown at it, I thought I'd get down and groovy this time. This sounds like... Hi, Nick Healy, how are you? I'm good. It sounds like I'm in an episode of Biteside After Dark when you do that voice. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm Seamus Byrne. I didn't say my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Seamus, it is nice to be back for 2020 and having a chat with you. It's good. Yeah, and look, I i mean, I fully expect in 10 years' time, because we've got a fresh new decade here, by 2030, um, we are controlling a media empire um, of a 1,000 podcasts. And, um, well, I did just hear that The Ringer, the kind of sports network, they might be getting bought by Spotify. So, you know, um, I, you know I'd take a tenth of what they're going to get probably. That would be fine. In 10 years' little... time. In 2030, you and I will be dancing for 20-cent pieces from TikTok stars. Like, let's be honest here. <laughs> oh, it's too true. <laughs> um, obviously, it has been a very indoorsy kind of a break. Um, you know, I think the, we have uh, litigated in many different conversations uh, amongst family, friends, acquaintances, no doubt, on your various programs, uh, just what kind of a hellish summer it has been. But I, as a different kind of look back at uh, the, the Christmas New Year break, uh, where we've been stuck indoors avoiding smoke, um, it's a good chance to think about we probably fit in a few TV shows and games while stuck indoors. So I'm curious what you've actually been been up to. Well, look, I finally caved. I caved and I did sign up for Disney Plus um, and I did it in such a way that when I woke up, Pretty, pretty gosh darn hungover on the first day <laughs> of the year. Uh, I was able to just slump on the couch and watch, well, pretty much everything they had on offer. I think I didn't move for about 14 hours in front of that. And, um, well, that's a good effort. I, I've been really impressed. So, uh, in addition to National Treasure and The Sorcerer's Apprentice and all of those things that you don't actually want to be watching, but you just can't get off the couch. Can I'm, I just check? Was that the Nick Cage Sorcerer's Apprentice? Of course it was. Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of people might have been confused thinking, oh, of course he means the, the classic Mickey Mouse Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh, no, no, no. No, not that classy. <laughs> just, just the Nick Cage, you know, weird wizard fedora one. Um, look, what I've actually been enjoying, and I've been really sinking my teeth into it, is going back to a lot of the animated Star Wars. I'd forgotten how much I really yeah. enjoyed, uh, and it's not the extended universe because they are regarded as canonical, but uh, I've been really enjoying those deeper stories. And I'd watched Rebels season one quite a while ago, and of course um, Disney Plus has, has all the seasons on it. I've just, I've been in awe of just how good that storytelling is for that short, you know, 21 minute uh, episode animated. It's, it's got me back in love with the Star Wars universe again. And I've heard that from so many people. Look, I'm still well out of the loop on Clone Wars and Rebels um, and particularly sort of off the, the back end of how Mandalorian finished. It was definitely, you know, suddenly I'm hearing people talking about how these kind of weird things that have appeared at the end to just avoid the spoilers um, tie into elements from Clone Wars and Rebels. And I love... I love the fact that this is this great moment where 
animated characters are getting paid the same respect as live action characters when it comes to, all right, this is a unified universe um, and therefore we're going to let things bleed across both. I even heard, you know, some, there were some voices uh, in Rise of Skywalker yes. that come in of other Jedi that were from the animated series. I love that this is starting to happen. I think it's really good. And um, look, as someone who read quite a few of the um, what are now known as the Legends novels, the expanded right. university EU novels back in the day, uh, uh, Thrawn trilogy in particular, I thought were excellent. Now, they've been regarded as non-canonical now. They're being rewritten. But the way things like Rebels are bringing in some of those characters, like Admiral Thrawn, I've been really enjoying because much as I'm like, oh, come on, you know, I've already read this, I know this, it's good to see them take a character, take what was amazing about that character, and within the confines of that sort of, you know, Disney Star Wars behemoth, actually bring it back into the fold. And I like what I've been watching a lot. So did you end up watching Mandalorian? I did. I, I loved Mandalorian as well. I mean, I, I, I going back over social media and seeing people worried about the pacing of Mandalorian or nothing happens, no one talks, that's everything I loved about it. I loved yeah. how laid back it was. It's undeniably a Western. I did see someone actually did an entire Western um, uh, intro for it with uh, the good, the bad, and the ugnaught, which has <laughs> just blown my mind. I love that so much. But, you know, someone on social media pointed out that there is no reason for The Mandalorian to spend nearly a full 90 seconds flipping switches in his ship but he does, and I love them for it. I love the way they've toned it down and let me just enjoy it and uh, could watch it again. Yeah, and look, I think going in cold, it was hard to sort of know what kind of show it was aiming to be at first. So that's why I definitely had a bit of that confusion around episodes three, four, five, I think, where there was such a setup to that through line of Baby Yoda that you're thinking, oh, okay, we're on one of these TV shows where it's going to be this ongoing story. But in hindsight, sort of seeing how it played out, uh, I love the fact that it happily had its story of the week moments uh, and that it's just like, yeah, you know, I'm still carrying around this Baby Yoda guy, but, uh, but that it just gave itself that room to relax and just tell some cool stories. And, and that by the end, you know, some of those threads obviously came back together, but it was still just, I think really, really by the end, I absolutely loved the pacing that they decided to go with. And if you can't, and please forgive me, cause this could be the most mild spoiler, but if you can't enjoy a guy in a jetpack backpack, taking down a TIE fighter by hand, <laughs> then I don't know what you will enjoy because that was incredible. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's, yeah, it's been a really good, uh, a really good run sort of for them so far. And I mean, you know, on an earlier episode, you asked the question, too much Star Wars, how are you feeling right now? I'm actually feeling better about it now. Um, but the weird thing is out of all of the Star Wars I've watched, and there's been a lot to watch and enjoy, i got to say that movie is still the one I've enjoyed the least. Yeah, yeah, and I I can't remember. No, it must. Yeah, I think it, we haven't talked about it on the show at all, really. But uh, I know that. Yeah, my feeling was probably I like I, in the moment I enjoyed it. I happily let myself go for the ride. That's sort of always the way I approach this stuff. And um, yeah, I just sort of it, it, there was definitely though a sense of relief that just. The Skywalker saga <laughs> is ended and now they can just make other movies, you know, and do other things with that 
great, great universe. Uh, so that's what I'm excited for from here. And, you know, I think debating sort of the, the qualities of that final movie, I'm like, yeah, I can completely understand why some people didn't like it. I absolutely agree with one of the main arguments, which is that it didn't, it never felt like there was a true through line of those three movies. It felt like three different sets of people wrote three different movies. They were not written together in that sort of unified way that would have made it feel like a true, you know, post Star Wars trilogy. And that's kind of, that is a bit disappointing um, because clearly there's so many weird leaps and characters that sort of appear and then are abandoned in the next movie and all those kinds of issues. It's like, yeah, that it just shows there was a real lack of um, one person clearly managing the storyline all the way through. We don't need to dwell on it, but it did make me think of the old joke about what do you call a camel? It's a horse that's been designed by a committee. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah there's a bit of that it was the camel of the trilogy <laughs> it really was. i mean look even the the prequels right it's like they stank up the joint in various ways but there's no question that it was all lucas's work <laughs> yeah look it was absolutely all lucas and i'll say this if i can just get another thing that approaches the absolute quality of rogue one i'll be a happy man 100 percent yeah. So look, I'll touch on I I tonight I'm going to finish off the final season of Mr. Robot. We caught up on that over the holidays. It is a really good final season. Really good. Um and like goes to some really weird places and that's where I'm curious exactly how it finishes. It's like a two-part final, you know, double episode sort of thing. Um but I think really well structured and yeah, for I think it had some I think season two or season three one of them was sort of a little bit flat um but overall i think it's a pretty great journey so if you're someone who's never um bothered getting around to the mr robot thing and plenty of people have struggled because it is purely on foxtel it's never been on any other service um then yeah yeah it makes sense that it might be tr- oh maybe it's on maybe early seasons are on stan at this point or something like that i'm not quite sure but Finishing really well, really excited. Um, as you well know, and many listeners might know, uh, I cosplayed Mr. Robot <laughs> once upon a time. Um, we were talking about the fact that it's been long enough now that actually uh, my son is almost tall enough now that I'm like, okay, actually, there's probably a time very soon where I could cosplay Mr. Robot and he could put on the black hoodie and the black stovepipe jeans and pretend to be Elliot. <laughs> Okay, that is wild. I'm not. I don't think I'm happy about that. Your son is not meant to be that tall or that old. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's literally, you know, practicing some Twitch streaming while while we are recording. (laughs) Look, it is one of those TV shows I never got past first season. I I did watch it all, but I I think I think I tried to watch episode one of second season. I felt like it came out the gate a bit weak, and I did leave it there. I Mm. will go back to it. I I often. I often find a bit of a joy in going back to when something is fully over. And I definitely enjoyed that with Breaking Bad, which I didn't start watching until it was over. Yeah. I, I loved binging all of Breaking Bad. I could see where it had sort of, you know, weak moments. 
on that way through. Same with actually Battlestar Galactica was one where I came to late and binged the whole thing and really enjoyed it. I know you don't like uh, modern Battlestar Galactica uh, with Space Bob Dylan. Um, but, yeah, I, I absolutely loved just kind of smashing through that series. That I, was very bingeable. I enjoyed it up to a point, but... Space Bob Dylan was indeed where I checked out. That was just a, a moment too far for me. I thought I'll quickly throw in one last thought. Studio Ghibli, amazing news that's just broken today, uh, that Netflix is getting the rights to Ghibli. So Ghibli or Ghibli? I'm not sure. Yeah, just go with Ghibli. Yep. Um, but that is such a win because it, I like, particularly with kids, I know we've often wanted to introduce them to all these movies. We have just had to go and pay top dollar at the video shop because you can't get them on any streaming service. So this is so exciting. They're landing starting in February. Um, we're thinking we're going to, you know, hold some little, uh, screening sessions with friends over here to you know bring the kids over we'll do our little backyard cinema and have some fun 100% do it they are well worth watching and uh, who knows how long that licensing agreement will last for right watch them all while you can and a really tiny one from me uh because i don't think it's ever been available on any of the streaming or free to air tv in australia i could well be wrong on that but i've never encountered it before gravity falls which has got to be like six seven eight years old now gosh it's good Oh, and that's on, is that on Disney? It's on Disney. Great. I, I, I totally forgot. Yeah, that there, there was one point where it was a big thing we were trying to get our hands on. So uh, absolutely, I've got to dive into that. A hundred percent, please do. Look, moving on topics, I have actually got a bit of a, a weird question for you because it's something we've been rattling around my brain. The year is 2020, and that has always been a very uh, potentious number, pretentious occasionally too, but a very potentious number. <laughs> Looking back, what did you think 2020 was going to be like when you were a kid? You know, I mean, spaceships. That was totally, yeah. totally part of it, was off-world action that that would be a normal part of life. Now, clearly that is a very difficult thing as we've discovered over the years. Certainly, I think there's a lot to be said for how all those kind of space dreams slowed down after a number of the NASA disasters. Uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things where I think uh, it was, yeah, that was kind of that front and center aspect that, you know, off-world, off-world colonies. Um, I mean, the old, you know, Arthur C. Clarke stuff of the year we made contact that, you know, there'd be all these sorts of elements going on in in the world. Yeah, look, well, I think I took a lot of my cues from, and I'm, I'm going back here to 1988, so I wasn't exactly young then, but um, I started playing a, a little-known tabletop RPG, I'm sure no one's heard of it, called Cyberpunk. Now, in 1988, when it first came out, Cyberpunk was head, uh, set in the heady, uh, terrifying world of the future of 2013. 2013. And, of course, it was updated two years later to be 2020. And, and for some reason, that's kind of stuck in my head. I remember a, a similar time, I think a couple of years later, maybe the early 90s, uh, Vertigo Comics were producing a, a run called Vertigo's 2020 Visions, which were visions of the future in the year 2020. I haven't gone back and had an exploration of that yet, but I did a bit of a, a run through this to see what was actually set in the year 2020 from old um, uh, old fiction. And I was stunned to learn that one of Iron Man's well-known villains, Arno Stark, is actually a relative of his from the year 2020. Ooh. Terror Hawks, 
the um, uh, uh, puppet drama from the same guy who did um, uh, uh, Thunderbirds 2020. Sea Lab 2020, of course. Uh, oh yes, Dark Angel. Do you remember that on TV with Jessica yes. Alba? Season half of season two, and I think second half of season one. And also just remind, for some reason, Forever Night just jumped into my brain when you said Dark Angel. Oh my god, Forever Night! <laughs> oh, look, Forever Night was the show to watch. That was great. It was so good. Time. Don't go for the movie. Go for the TV show, please do. But yeah, it's become one of. I think because it's such a. It's a, even a nice year to say 2020, yeah. and it evokes so much future technology. I genuinely thought, and I think this is going to lead us into something else we want to talk about today, I really thought that we would be living in an age of more common robotics. Perhaps when I, yeah. I'm being unfair because robotics is actually quite common, more common autonomous robotics. Yeah. Yep. That's a really good way to think about it. And the stuff about cyberpunk as well is, I think, a huge thing to touch on because I, I played the RPG back in the day too. And that was definitely like, there's this ethics element to that, isn't there? Where I think the world has been like far more conservative in the long run than a lot of these sort of visions of the future probably you know, thought would happen. You know, so that idea of saying, oh, well, like I, I, I'll get my arm replaced with an awesome prosthetic that is even better than, than my original arm. You know, these kinds of discussions, you know, when we look at the issues with, um, you know, prosthetics in, in running and the way in which there's kind of these debates over like, oh, it's not allowed to give back the runner more uh, speed mm. than their natural leg might have given them. So we are going to do biodynamics testing to make sure that it's not an enhancement. And part of it is almost like, well, give them the enhancement. Let's see, <laughs> let's see people with replacement legs run as fast as their body can carry them. Yeah. Um, all these sorts of interesting aspects that are in those books and in those kinds of, uh, you know, role-playing games that in the real world, there's much more of that sense of, oh, no, 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 let's not, let's not just jump in the deep end there and let people do whatever they want to do with this stuff. It's really interesting because drug cheating has been a really huge part of sport for a long time yeah. and uh, one that's probably been very detrimental for that sport. And although you often hear the argument about, well, just, just make them their own sporting code and let them take all the drugs they want. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, is that not dissimilar to the idea of just have the enhancements and, and yeah. do what you want? I mean, I remember reading years ago and being blown away by this, but apparently Tiger Woods had LASIK surgery to over-correct his vision. Oh, he has 20-30 vision. Wow. Okay. I, I sometimes wonder if that's even a thing. Yeah. But but isn't that kind of almost making him just long-sighted rather than... Which would be a huge advantage on the golf course. And yeah, I suppose, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't have good answers yeah. on this. Yeah, and look, the thing that jumps at me as well is the fact that uh, I've forgotten his name. You might remember it. Uh, I know he's a, a famed in, inner Westie. Um, but the guy who did the body modification to just have his opal chip in his hand and like the government took him to court for, you know, using oh. it, his passing correctly. You're like, that's some wild conservative sort of crap when it comes to someone go going, I just came up with a really convenient way to tap on and off 
with with the back of my hand and they've gone oh that means you like broke the law of the opal card that was um that was ludo wasn't it what's his right. full name meow ludo disco gamma meow meow is his full name, I believe. I remember interviewing him years ago for New South Wales state politics when he was running for the Science Party. Right, yeah. So that's it. I think, yeah, it's like we're we're, we're thinking big picture sometimes when we can't even just let somebody come up with a convenient way to pay for their transport. (laughs) You're right, though, but let's look at that body modification because that's really interesting to me. Someone who was absolutely obsessed with transhumanism back in the 90s and this real sense that somehow those early internet communities were actually going to push the evolution of human society. And it's embarrassing Mm. to say that now, but I genuinely felt like we were on the cusp of some sort of almost, you know, societal apotheosis at times. Like everything seemed so important and so urgent and for it to devolve into what we've got now is just heartbreaking. But, you know, we honestly thought that body modification like that, you know, was just going to be de rigueur in two, three, four years' time. Yeah, Uh, right. I mean, I was reading something the other day about just this whole issue of how the world – well, the, the online world was kind of this, you know, open, wonderful place with lots of ghettos in, in the good sense, you know, that we we're all kind of collaborating and mixing with other people who loved the things we loved and, and we were trying to sort of help each other be more of like these awesome things. But then it just all became so corporatized that, yeah, as much as now it's like politically we are deeply divided online. That idea of of having these communities kind of you know going more wild sort of online. That's like, oh, we don't want people just kind of pushing boundaries and <laughs> helping each other do cool things um without permission. Like but now like the corporate advertising internet, it's perfectly fine to have, you know, deeply divided political views. So it's 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 kind of it's it's almost gone the wrong way around now, right? I think it massively has. And it it's been look, at some point we're gonna have to stop and have a big look at what we we lost in this, what we thought it was going to be and what we ended up with. And we're gonna have some really hard conversations about how we ended up here, I think. And it's interesting you talk about that corporatization, but of course that um I'm trying to think of the name of it, the new facial recognition database that's been in the news lately. The the um yes. the system that is scraping billions and billions of photos and allowing um well at the moment I think yeah agencies but potentially individuals to find out information based on facial recognition in seconds. That's not what we thought we were signing up for. Clearview. Yeah. Is it Clearview who were making it? Yes. Did you know that was, in fact, uh, started by an Australian? No, I did not know that. Clearview AI, uh, Hon Tontat, uh, an Australian technologist and apparently one-time model. I just, like, I had that article open. I hadn't sort of flicked across to it. Um, but the New York Times did this deep dive on Clearview AI and, yeah, the fact that it has just scraped billions of publicly available photos in the name of building a facial recognition database. Um, you know, and, and through the process, kind of creating better AI systems that can read all those sorts of things as well. It's like, it is, you're right. I mean, I was going to throw out that it's a bit of a meme at the moment, again, sort of online, but it's like, yeah, we've become a, a world of cops. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, the fun stuff, oh, we don't want to let the fun stuff happen. But the stuff that sits in that grey area of just 
horrible conservative political beliefs. Yeah, everyone can just quietly go about shouting those things around the internet. That's fine. That is fine. Uh, look, sometimes when I think, you know, when we look at what we thought 2020 was going to be like or the future in general, uh, I just kind of think of that, the quote, you know, no plan survives first contact with the oh. enemy. But in this scenario, we're the enemy? Like it's us? <laughs> we're our own worst enemy. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a lot of it. And look, I think... Um, you know, to, to jump off that sort of AI thing there as well. I don't want us to actually spend too long on this one at the moment. I think there's probably so many conversations this is going to come up as a part of, but it does feel like, um, this whole idea of, you know, of this new decade, it feels like, it does feel like a lot of people sort of have that fresh feeling of, okay, how do we fix the things that have gone wrong? You know, and so where I think a lot of the last few years, there has been a lot of that talk of, um, you know, the algorithm is broken and, you know, we need to fix algorithms. And I mean, yeah, obviously they're just this very ephemeral concept of an algorithm. Uh, that is both magical and mundane, you know, somehow, oh, you can just whip up an algorithm to do what these people do. Um, yeah, that it seems like people are going to try to get much more particular about what exactly is being done with our information, what exactly is it being used for, all these kinds of questions of regulation, I think, are going to come up. And I think it is important that they are debated properly, um, you know, not regulation that just means all control is handed to a government entity, more regulation in terms of what exactly are people allowed to do because this stuff really does matter um, and people have to be able to give highly informed consent for these things to happen, not this casual consent which is hidden behind a you know, 130-page privacy statement, all that kind of crap. We have to do better than that. We do have to do better than that. And I think implicit in that is making sure that when we, we do give permission, when we do buy into the AI, the algorithm, whatever we're calling it, it's actually useful. And I, I just yes. I, I keep fixating on this. It's just weirding me out because, you know, when we look at, say, recommendations for shopping, now they are supposed to be smartly based on your shopping, your browsing and your viewing habits. And I will just always go back to that. I bought a backpack over Cyber Monday and now all I get is ads from Amazon uh, for backpacks, like I am somehow the Imelda Marcos of backpacks. <laughs> yes. Like I've already bought one. I bought one through you. You know I bought one. So why yeah. are you still continuing to shill me a backpack? See, that's interesting, isn't it? it? I mean, that it really actually points to the idea that they do not have a button for the advertiser that says, unless this, you know, yes. If this person has searched for this thing, um, then I want to also target them with that thing. But there really should be a button that says, unless they have just bought one. It's just um, wild. You know, 30 days, 60 days, whatever time limit they want. But an advertiser should be allowed to do that because that is something that the advertiser is wasting money on. It, look, absolutely. And and for me, it's just a weird inconvenience. Like, it makes me less inclined to take those recommendations. And, yeah. I mean, Amazon's a bit famous for it. They're absolutely wild. But you do see it on, um, well, streaming services we were talking about before. You know, because you watched X, try watching Y. And you're like, how do they even connect? Why would you think I'd want to watch that? Yeah. But, look, and, I mean, that is part of the then that flip side, right, that I want to see more serendipity thrown into this mix, you know, where instead of it telling me 
because you liked this thing, you might also like this other thing. I'd love it if it actually sometimes just said, have you ever thought about this? And saying, this is actually from a section of the service that you you normally never explore. Just throw something out there for me that might surprise me and isn't just based on all the usual things that I always prefer. You know, give me something that makes me pleasantly surprised. James Byrne, you were dangerously sounding like the kind of person who clicks the I'm feeling lucky button on Google.com. <laughs> oh, you know what? It's been... <laughs> Yeah, okay, it's been years. Uh, it may have not even been once in the last decade. Thank God for that. I'm going to press that button this afternoon. A double dog dare you. Um, <laughs> we were talking about the start of the year a bit earlier, and uh, what was notable to me, and it's been a couple of years since you and I have done it, but normally our, well, for a long time, our early January was taken up with the Consumer Electronics Show. CES, and mm. neither you nor I have been for a couple of years. I think it's been two or three for me. Maybe hey, 2018, Nick, did you, my last. Did you miss it? Did you miss being there? Did I you did. miss it? <laughs> Look, no. No, I really <laughs> didn't. I, I, I miss the camaraderie of working with the people we used to work Precisely. with. They were an incredible team to be there. But I don't miss it. And I think what was interesting is deliberately just seeing what came through on mainstream and not following along with the right hashtags or anything like that. Like just seeing what Facebook pushed up to me and what Twitter pushed up to me and what I saw on the news. Do you know how much news I saw from CES? How much? None. Not one. In fact, I, I tell a lie, one thing came up and it was only in social media. I didn't see it anywhere else. And that was that bally robot from Samsung. But I did not see my feed absolutely crowded with news from CES. And I don't know if that was just me avoiding it or if maybe that consumer, the C, isn't as consumery as it used to be. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, yeah, I think I'll I'll dive into this a bit more with you now, but I, I do, we should start with Borley. You know, I actually watched, the only part of it I tuned in for live, I watched the Samsung press conference. Um, and so in context, it was really, it was one of those things where, there was so much talk of the grand vision of, you know, the, the future and the world and how we're going to help you with that you don't have enough time and all of those catchphrases that we have heard many, many times every year at CES for the past 10 years. It reminded me of an episode of Silicon Valley. I'm not kind of trying to specifically pick on Samsung on this general point, but that every one of these press conferences, I actually, I did catch a kind of a couple of little the intro bits where they all, it's that promise. Oh, we're changing the world by doing these <laughs> things for you. And you don't have enough time in your life. So we're going to make it more convenient. Um, all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. It just, it really did remind me of the Silicon Valley TV show, um, which also, I don't know if we finished that off at the end of last year, but it also finished over end of last year. And I loved the finale. It was great. Well worth watching the last season. Um, Stay detail. on target. Stay on Bally. target. It was fascinating <laughs> as an idea. Um, yeah, Nick, tell me what you actually thought. But look, I looked at it and thought, A, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen for a long time, and B, we still don't know what we want home robots to do. We yes. just don't have a clue. We're trying to solve 
for a problem we haven't even defined yet. Cast your mind back, sir, to 2016, to the end of May, when you and I were in Taiwan, and uh, Asus rolled out Zenbo, the household robot. Zenbo. Do you remember Zenbo? Zenbo. I I did like the idea of Zenbo, but we also, I think, cracked many jokes about how Zenbo was totally going to kill us in our sleep. Zenbo was only going to be 600 bucks. He was launching in six months. Now, have you met anyone with a Zenbo? Zenbo did not come out. Zenbo did not come out, did it? Because Zenbo was trying to solve a problem we're not having yet. We don't need a household robot that follows us around and yells at us. We certainly don't need a tennis ball that follows us around and what could turn on the TV to keep the dog entertained. I mean, is that a massive problem people are having at home? Now, question for you. If if Bawley was actually designed with a license from Disney to be a mouse uh, drone from Star Wars, would you want one in your house then? It'd be cute, but I'd also forget to charge it or I'd forget it existed or I wouldn't do anything with it. Like, if it I... can't charge itself, it shouldn't be a dumb robot running around my house. That is absolutely a rule for me. But what is, what is Bawley going to do for me? How will Bawley change my day-to-day life? And I just want to stop here and say I'm not trying to unbelievably be unfair on Samsung. You just happen to be the thing that, I'm focusing on at the moment. Yeah. There were plenty of other equally stupid ideas at CES. It wasn't just you, Samsung. Yeah. Look, I, yeah, I had definitely, I had big problems with Bawley because, of course, in the perfect demo house that they always have, it is all hardwood floors that are perfectly smooth from end to end of the house. Uh, there are no stairs, there are no <laughs> carpet changing to, you know, carpets for it to guess, get its little tre- treads clogged up with uh, pet hair. Um, you know, all those real-world aspects of dealing with a real-life house um, are not something it contends with in that sort of demonstration. And and the idea of it just always, like, it felt small enough that, you know, when there's one point when he sort of walked, walked towards it in the demo um, and, of course, he very carefully started walking towards it so that it could back away from him cleverly. But it was like you had to very carefully walk around that thing. I can absolutely see myself. I already have to worry about two cats, but I know that they're going to get out of my way as I swing around with a pot in the kitchen. I'm not sure if Borley is going to know to jump out of my way or whether I'm going to end up slipping over. Um it's just nuts. Look, we have a vector in our house. That was the Anki vector. It is like a little AI type thing. It's got Alexa built in so huh. that it can, you can ask it for things and it'll do Alexa answers and it'll set a timer for you. Lots of really basic little ideas. Uh, my wife hates it, <laughs> hates it. And partly because when you walk into the room, it kind of want, it, it'll come over the, you know, it's like it, it sits on a bench. It'll come over and look at you and sort of say, ah, oh, um, oh yeah, it'll identify your face and then it'll say your name. And it's like, it's, it's really needy. <laughs> and, and she's like, I have enough I, cats and kids. I don't need a robot demanding my attention every time I walk into the kitchen. Like, can I just be left alone for a while? Yet 
When I showed her Borley and I was expecting her to say she hated it. Uh huh. She looked at it and went, Oh, look, it looks like a little chicky. It's like a little, little baby chick. And this was the little yellow one that she saw someone like cradling in their hands. And she was literally in love with this. So I don't know what consumers want is part of what I'm saying with that. <laughs> look, I, that is actually cute. And look, I, I have no problem with owning something like this for the cute factor. I mean, you know, I thought those BB-8 remote controls were absolutely adorable, all that kind of stuff. I guess, as you were saying, there's or in it, let's, let's take a step back. Let's say that you do actually train Borley to not be under your feet and it can navigate a step down into a sunken lounge room or anything like that. Let's say all of that's fine. Let's say Borley's not going to roll through a puddle of cat piss and short circuit or anything like that. <laughs> I still don't understand what Borley's doing. I still don't understand what single aspect of my life Borley is meant to be helping with. Yeah, and I think there's a really good point around this whole discussion, which is what does this solve that the phone in my pocket doesn't already solve? And especially when that phone in our pocket is used in conjunction with, and this is the new phrase that I'm hearing used a lot now, as a much better phrase than Internet of Things and Smart Home and all that. It's just ambient tech. It's that idea of, yes, the smart speakers are things that I can just kind of call out to if I need something done or it will play me music or whatever, but I don't have to go and pick it up or somehow find an interface to do something with it. I just say stuff and stuff is within range to just happen because I own the right bits of tech around my house. And I think that is the big thing for me, that smart speakers plus my phone, what else is the robot giving me that those two things together don't solve. Now, I've been out of the loop. Ambient tech is not a phrase I've heard before. I absolutely love it because it comes back to something you and I have discussed over and over over the years, that the best technology is invisible when it works. I always go back to a light switch. The only time you ever think about the act of switching on a light is when the light doesn't come on. (laughs) <laughs> when it works as it's supposed to, it's invisible tech. You never consider it. And I'm getting that way with my s- smart speakers. You know, I talk to them, I request things, and the only time I really notice to a certain degree I'm doing it is when it doesn't work. Like when I say bedside lamp off and it goes, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, well, that's really bloody unusual because you knew how to turn it on and you know how to turn it off every other time I've asked. So why is this time a problem? That's the only time I notice it. Ambient tech is a great way of putting this. Yeah. And, and exactly that idea of, and I think this is where it even ties back in a bit of the AI stuff before that I think when we start adding proactivity to a lot of that in the coming years so that you know, these speakers, the lights, everything starts to kind of become useful within our day-to-day routine. And it I don't have to go and find it or seek it out. I can instead just sort of have it so that it might suggest that, you know, maybe some sensor does notice I've walked into the kitchen and maybe it says, do you want to hear this morning's news? 
and I know it's going to give me this two-minute, you know, ABC bulletin or whatever it might be that just goes, great, right at the moment when I'm going to be standing here for three minutes making a cup of tea and it's not like it does it at the scheduled time that I had to preemptively schedule, but then on that morning I'm not standing there at the right moment and so I'm kind of annoyed because I can hear the news at the other end of the house and I'm not there yet. I, I really like this idea of a more proactive system that again, really, I think, buys into that idea of it's just ambient tech. It's there to kind of notice things and just help us out when we need it. That is actually a really nice thing. I, you know, and it, you've raised a really good point that I'm happy with this technology to push information to me, to be uh, active in the way it relates to me and not just reactive, but it's got to be within the right context. Simplest thing I'd like is for my Android phone, my Google phone in my Google-connected house to know when I've turned off my Bluetooth headphones and start playing that music on my speakers instead. Yes. All, yeah, exactly. There's so many of these layers of it, right? Which, And this is actually, it comes straight to this sort of, yeah, last point I wanted to make about this, which is that I think the big issue with CES right now is it feels like it's kind of losing its way because the last decade was so hardware-centric, like so many revolutions, so many kinds of tech completely transformed, but that that has now set this CES paradigm where they feel like every year they have to reveal a new piece of hardware. And I feel like Borley is kind of one of those pieces of hardware in a place where Samsung owns a whole bunch of brilliant smart home technology companies. <laughs> it releases all this stuff, but it is not sexy on stage to do a demonstration of just the ambient stuff, just kind of going, oh, look at this new software patch that you're going to get for the thing you already own. I think Apple, because it controls its own ecosystem, you know, they've nailed that whole idea of worldwide developer conference. It's like they get to have a keynote every year where they just talk about new features that you're going to get in the thing you already own. Like, that's kind of awesome. But most other companies, that idea of saying, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money for a really big press conference just to talk about some software features that people are going to get in the devices that they've already paid for, and it's not going to be an excuse to tell them why they need to buy the next one. That's kind of a real issue right now for a lot of consumer tech companies because they have made so much money selling us new TVs and new phones, but all these things are kind of lasting longer. And it does mean now that there's a real struggle to, you know, when actually the best thing they could do is show off the killer software feature, the thing that does suddenly go, like, again, I guess Pixel phone last year, right? When, when Google, only in the US so far, but when they were able to reveal that we're going to add this AI feature that's going to answer the phone for you to screen calls. You're like, that is brilliant. And I love that it's not only in the new device. It's here's a software rollout that everybody who uses our ecosystem is going to get. Look, that is what we want to see. And, and you know, you were saying before about that, that urge to throw out the new product every single time you're on stage, the new bit of hardware. It's that same mentality that led to, I think, about, say, four years ago, that absolute period of incredibly bad feature bloat in every single smartphone. All those yeah. things like it's going to track your eyes and scroll automatically as you look down a page. I'm like, no one wanted that. I never wanted it. I'm going to turn that off immediately. Yeah. Why are you spending an hour telling me about how it's going to do that when you know I don't want it to do that? Yeah. So, you know, I hope. I hope there's a bit of a... 
you know, a, a sense shift or even, right, in some ways I feel like maybe CES as an event will start to sort of fade away a little bit. I mean, it'll always exist, of course, but even just that idea where you go, some of these companies, they do have to throw so much money at this one big event. And I've even heard from sort of some of these people behind the scenes that they're like, we're always a bit careful about showing off our best stuff because we know that other you know, engineers from other companies are just going to come in and eyeball it and start building their version. So they kind of, you know, like maybe there'll be more of that thing where like Samsung throws their unpacked events for all the phones. It's like maybe they should be throwing their, you know, March TV event and just do their own thing. And that can both be about showing off the cool things that are going to roll out in a software update as well as the the reason that you should also buy the, the next one they're going to sell you. Though 8K can go jump, it is the stupidest idea, and I am going to continue on with this one for many years to come as they keep trying to shovel 8K down our throats. I think we should just uh, take a cue from Sony and everyone should just get up and show their latest logo that is functionally identical <laughs> to every single logo they've ever done beforehand and that leave was- it at that. That was actually amazing. Yep. New logo. Thanks very much. Good night. It's, it looks exactly like PlayStation 4. We just changed to 4 to a 5. Someone did an animation of it, uh, like an animated GIF thing, where they literally showed that they were able to take the P, rotate it, move it across, and then draw a line across it, and that was exactly the shape of the five. And you know what? (laughs) I'm looking forward to the six as well. I think that's going to look equally good. An extra little line at the bottom of the five. Oh, absolutely delightful. Um, We should wrap up soon, but I just wanted to kind of raise something that was really unusual for me. Um, On Sunday, and I'm guessing a lot of people would have seen the footage and the pictures of this. You might have. Did you see the dust storm that kind of took over social media? Yes. I mean, look, here we are on the end of a fire firestorm of a summer and then hailstorms and then right alongside the hailstorms, this wall of dust in enveloping Dubbo. I remember thinking of you. Uh, I apologize. I didn't send you a message to check if you're okay, (laughs) but it was definitely one of those moments where you go, whoa, that, that is not a thing that should happen. But thanks to all these people for capturing images of it so that we could realize how crazy it was. Look, it was absolutely wild to be in because, because that was getting towards my bedtime. I mean, that dust storm sort of hit, you know, after 7 p.m., which is very late at night for me these days. Um, <laughs> so I'd actually been chilling out playing uh, video games and suddenly it was pitch black and there was a howling noise. I'd missed the whole thing arriving and just kind of noticed when it struck and it struck very hard. We get a lot of dust storms. This is the first one I've been in that was something like this. It was wild. But I knew it was serious because I started getting messages from right around the globe of people seeing the uploaded videos and the uploaded pictures and saying, are you okay? Like you joke about that, but I was getting people, people from England, people from, you know, the US, are you okay? And there was something about the way social media had grabbed those images and turned them around so quickly that it was really unusual to me when 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 you're living in it and when it is at the end of the day just a dust storm like it was a big one but we have them here now a colleague of mine who got out and took some photos of it, of it arriving a photo of her watching it with her back turned to the camera that's gone right around too i think the new york times used it as the illustration for their story around this wow yeah look i I, I realized actually it was early December because I remember it was right around when all the 
fire issues were starting to kick off that I saw um, it had been the 10th anniversary of the Sydney dust storm that mm. was kind of so famed at the time. Um, you know, when Sydney turned orange and even later there were the stories of how it actually inspired some of the design work on Las Vegas in the, the Blade Runner sequel. Yeah, look, um, I, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Um, but, of course, a very different time for our day-to-day use of devices and online. You could post the odd photo. Um, and, of course, our phones were not as good a camera as they no. are today. So it's like that engagement was very different where, you know, expert photographers went out. And so days later, we sort of saw these amazingly captured versions of what had happened. But in real time now, we can have people like the one I sort of saw that blew my mind was this time lapse of someone driving towards the wall of dust out there at Dubbo and then kind of pulling over at the last second. And then instantly it was just black. Um, and, you know, someone went past with their headlights on and, and I noticed their brake lights came on very quickly all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> but that clearly is something where someone's been able to go from, oh, there's my dash cam to I'm putting that on the internet moments later. And therefore there was such a real time quality to the way it was being um, distributed by people. Look, I've got to say this, and I've spoken to a few people, and it's the weirdest thing to have a bit of disappointment with, but I was trying to get some photos in my backyard to get a sense of just how dark it was at the wrong time, just the the, the unusual lighting that was coming from the dust cloud. And um, the pixel is so good in low light, it just looks like my backyard. <laughs> The camera really started correcting the colours so it didn't look very striking at all. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. That's that's actually a really good point, isn't it? <laughs> because, I mean, we're, yeah, we're loving these new features. But when you're like, I want to actually demonstrate how not normal this is, please go away. I actually was trying to take a selfie with a, um, with a, a miniature that I painted during the holidays. And I kind of realized that because I'm holding the camera with one hand, I couldn't really do the focus on me thing. And again, all cameras now are like, I see a face, so I'm going to focus on the face. And therefore, it didn't want to focus on the mini that I wanted in focus while I wanted myself to be blurred out in the background. And it was like, no, I can't do it. And my friend who actually uh, was teaching us about minis looked at me and went, Many, many of us have tried. We just can't take selfies with <laughs> with miniatures anymore. <laughs> this has been a wild ride of technology's not doing all the things I want it to, to technology's <laughs> too good to do the things I want it to do. <laughs> well, it does sound like a good place to wrap up for the year then, uh, with the year. <laughs> Look, let's call it quits, Nick. <laughs> uh. Wrap up for the first show of the year, Nick. Thank you so much always fun it is a lot of fun and i'll be back here next week don't you worry about that excellent so of course you can catch uh, me on twitter i'm at seamus nick is at dr underscore nick and then there's at bite side there's at the bite side on instagram uh there is bite side on facebook and of course email us we really do want to hear from you dear listener at ask at biteside.com or via all the social media stuff. Just mention that you're sending it to us for Biteside and that way we can have a chat about any cool things you want to bring up or things you want us to explore um, because this is going to be a really fun year. Uh, I am getting all my shows back off the ground properly this year, so it is uh, going to be a really fun time all around all the Biteside 
things, including the newsletter. Go and get that if you don't get it already. Nick, thank you again for stopping by. Absolute pleasure.